For more than five years, Deep State Radio has been on top of all the key foreign policy and national security stories impacting the world. We're grateful to our members who make all of this possible and hope that you will consider supporting our work by becoming a member. Members get access to our expanded offering of exclusive bonus content, the opportunity to participate in discussions via our member Slack community, our weekly member bonus briefs, and our DSR Daily Brief newsletter delivered to your inbox each evening at 5 p.m. Members also receive all of our content via private member feed that you can add to your podcast app of choice. Join now for just $5 per month or $50 per year. Visit thedsrnetwork.com and select Become a Member. And don't miss our upcoming mini-series featuring interviews with some of the key players from David's upcoming book, American Resistance, the inside story of how the deep state saved the nation. Thank you. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you today from Cambridge, Massachusetts. We are also joined today by Rosa Brooks, Rosa holds the Scott K. Ginsburg Chair in Law and Policy at Georgetown University Law Center, where she also serves at, and all the nerds say this in unison, the Associate Dean for Centers and Institutes. Hi, Rosa. Hi, David. I know you really like that. I love it. I love it. And you are in America's heartland. I am in America's heartland. I'm in, in Shell, Wyoming. That it has all of our listeners worried. What does Rosa know that we don't know? <laughs> Takes me back to the old jokes with David Sanger about Rosa. Into the missile silo. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's I'm sure what. No, they're... I'm looking for dinosaurs, David. I'm going to find my own T Rex. I'm going to I'm going to reconstruct it. I'm going to put it at the base of my driveway. Okay. Well, my only advice is don't play around with the DNA. I've seen movies. Yeah. Yeah. Find a dead one, Rosa, not a yeah. live one. Yeah, really dead one. <laughs> we are also joined today by Andrea Kendall-Taylor. Andrea is Senior Fellow and Director of Transatlantic Security Program at the Center for New American Security and former Deputy National Intelligence Officer for Russia and Eurasia. How are you today, Andrea? I am doing well. That is great. And of course, Corey Shockey is here. Corey is Senior Fellow and Director of Foreign and Defense Policy Studies at the American Enterprise Institute. How are you, Corey? I am exceedingly well. Thank you, David. Excellent. That's what we're always looking for from you. And uh, finally, we are joined today by Andrew Weiss. Andrew is the James Family Chair and Vice President of Studies at my old stomping grounds, the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. And his first graphic novel, Accidental Czar, The Life and Lies of Vladimir Putin, comes out on November 8th. And before we dive into the serious stuff, I want to say I have seen this graphic novel. I've started to read this graphic novel. 
It is extremely cool, but no one on the listens to this pod will take my word for what is cool. Corey, it's cool, right? It's amazing. Not only is Andrew incredibly smart on these issues, but such a role model for the rest of us of finding creative ways to make our expertise accessible to people who otherwise might not engage it. I'm full of admiration for it, Andrew. Yeah, although all of us who have been in the foreign policy community have long seen it as a bit of a cartoon, Andrew. (laughs) (laughs) You've you've, you've rendered it as it is. Congratulations on the book. Thank you. But as one of my former bosses once said, those who think flattery is not effective obviously have not had enough of it. So anyways, but no, it's really great to be with all of you today. Thank you. It's great. It's great to, to be with you. Let's start with an incident that as its cartoonish qualities, yesterday, 30 members of the Progressive Caucus in the United States put out a letter saying, hey, let's let's the Biden administration negotiate now with uh, Ukraine. It overlooked a few things like that's for Ukraine to do. And, you know, negotiating now is the slogan of the Russians because they think it means capitulation and handing over land to them that they've seized through aggression. And today, minutes ago, the letter was withdrawn by the Progressive Caucus as a result of a social media outcry, which I I am proud to say I participated in. (laughs) Um, They've been canceled by the Annunciation by the White House from the press secretary's podium. Yeah, well, it deserved all the denunciation it got. I mean, you know, peace is good, right? And negotiating when it's the time to negotiate, if you're in a position to negotiate and you can actually advance your interests, also good. This didn't involve any of those things, or did it, Andrew? When I saw the letter, I was, you know, like a lot of you, looking at it and just doing the head shake because it just didn't look right. I'm not an expert on U.S. politics, but from the point of someone who studies the conflict, it just wasn't correct to assert that this is, you know, something that, you know, we need a diplomatic push right now. I mean, there's been no credible response from the Russians at any point in the period since the war started in 2014 to any diplomatic engagement, like they had never engaged seriously. So there's a real question of like, you know, is there a possibility of negotiating? And I'm not sure there is. But what I dug up, and I assume people have seen it, there are these two polls. There's one that the, University, that the Chicago Council on Foreign Relations issued, and there's another that the University of Maryland produced. And they show striking bipartisan support for Ukraine along the lines of what the Biden administration is doing, maximum military support, maximum economic pressure on Russia, and you know, willingness to have refugees come to the U.S. even, um, although Democrats and Republicans differ on that. Um, the only place where that bipartisan consensus looks really weak I mean, it's it's they're they're in the same spot as on. Do you want U.S. troops introduced into the conflict? And there, Republicans and Democrats are both really wary, understandably. So, so to me, you know, the problem we're all looking at is that this war could go on for a long time. It's going to be disruptive to the pre-war equilibrium that existed in the world. It's going to hurt the global economy. It's going to be very dangerous because the Russians continue to use escalation as a way to kind of force Western leaders to kind of somehow sit on the Ukrainians and tell them to stop fighting a genocidal invasion. So it's like, you know, like I understand the the existential angst 
that members of Congress are feeling, but we all have to realize that this isn't going to be over soon. And we have to think about the implications of that and manage the dangers. And we have to really do that skillfully because we're up against a formidable adversary. No doubt. Andrea, I'd be interested in your reaction to it. One of the things that struck me was it's not really up to the United States to negotiate this, but perhaps perhaps I'm overstating that. No, I mean, I agree with everything Andrew just said. And I think another reason that it was so problematic is for what it does to the confidence of our allies. And so I was just in Europe last week in Riga, and there is a lot of anxiety amongst our European allies about what is going to happen in the United States um, after the midterm elections. And while we were there, McCarthy came out with the statement saying that there is unlikely to be a a blank check, I think he said, for Ukraine moving forward. And that already created a significant amount of anxiety and a lot of questions about where Washington stands in our staying power. I mean, what Andrew said is correct. This is a long war. And so Europeans are watching very carefully for signals and indicators of our staying power in this conflict. So on the back of the McCarthy statement to see this letter come out, um, I think is just going to really shake the confidence of a lot of our European allies. I didn't know the letter was withdrawn. I'm really glad to see that it was. But the fact that it is out there just furthers this anxiety. And I think just to Andrew's point, again, this is a long conflict. And so rather than talking about how we make amoral concessions to bring this to an end sooner um, rather than later, that's not those are not the conversations we need to be having. And instead, we need to be working with our allies to do all of the things that Andrew said to develop a strategy, whether it's how we uh, build the production lines to sustain our defense support for Ukraine as long as it takes, how we continue to constrict and constrain the Kremlin, all of the things we needed to be doing on the economic front to ensure that they have the capacity to stay the course in Ukraine as well. So again, those are the conversations that we need to be having. This was hugely distracting. It's extremely unfortunate that it happens. And we do need to be signaling to our allies that we have the stomach and the staying power to see this through, as long as it takes, is what President Biden says. You know, Corey, uh, Andrea makes a good point. The letter was a mistake. Withdrawing it may not diminish its negative impact, however, because the message to the Russians is we're wobbly. And they know the right is wobbly because of McCarthy and Donald Trump. Yeah, I was going to get to that. And to hope that they can also count on the left being wobbly is exactly what Russia might hope for in a long war, because they're not really winning the war. But perhaps they can wait it out until the allies start peeling away from Ukraine. And so, you know, the the damage seems to be, be done, eh, Corey? So I do think both Kevin McCarthy and the Progressive Caucus are, in essence, helping the Russian war effort by raising these issues. I'm a little bit sympathetic to the fact that if McCarthy becomes Speaker of the House, he's going to have an isolationist part of the party to deal with, the Trumpists to deal with, who are related but different than that and budget hawks to deal with. But my guess is that this is pretty easily stitched together and in ways that will be advantageous to Ukraine, namely creating an inspector general to keep track of money that's coming in as assistance to Ukraine. I think that will actually help Ukraine 
diminish the endemic corruption that was a huge problem for them before the war and will reassure foreign investors about investing in Ukraine. So I think, you know, we can play this to advantage, even though it was unfortunate on both sides. And I think Russian strategy is basically that they cannot defeat the Ukrainian military. And so they are trying to drive the Ukrainian citizenry to despair by cutting the power, by cutting uh, heat, and hope that Ukrainians will submit. And so it's in all of our interest to figure out how to get the power back on in all of those Ukrainian cities, to limber up the restrictions we have put on the Ukrainians that they ought to be able to fire at any place that a missile targeting Ukrainian civilians comes from. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at the Global Dispatches podcast. Global Dispatches is the longest-running independent world news podcast. It's hosted by veteran international affairs journalist Mark Leon Goldberg, who conducts thoughtful interviews with policymakers, think tankers, journalists, and experts of all stripes from around the world. The Guardian called it a podcast to make you smarter, we think you might want to give it a listen. As a person who, just by virtue of the fact that you're listening here, has an interest in international affairs, this is just the kind of podcast you might well want to be listening to. Global Dispatches covers issues ranging from conflicts and crises in Africa and the Middle East to long-term trends in international relations and the latest geopolitical intrigues at the UN and beyond. If you like Deep State Radio, you really need to give a listen to Global Dispatches. You can find Global Dispatches, World News That Matters, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. That's a good point. And, and we're some few, for further discussion in a moment. I'd like to ask one last question of Rosa on this particular set of issues. And that is, not only is the Neville Chamberlain caucus in the Congress, one of the few bipartisan groups operating there. Um, but there is a third group which is sort of involved in this, which our friend Joe Serencion described on Twitter as big tech, but it's more than that. There is kind of Elon Musk and, you know, Glenn Greenwald and the kind of libertarian free radicals in the system who've adopted this. Russian line, which is, let's, we, we want peace. It's not, it's, you know, opposing negotiation with Russia is opposing peace. And that makes you a neocon. But of course, negotiating with someone who's not going to honor the agreement, who might get the wrong message if their aggression actually produces positive gains for them, and where the peace is not likely to last, that doesn't seem Uh, peace-oriented at all. I'm just wondering, what do you make of this kind of odd collection of characters who seem to be backing this message, Rosa? That group has always been out there saying things like that. Not always, always, obviously, but certainly for the last, you know, 10 years or so. It's a strange message. I think it's a sort of, I think some on the American left were so scarred by, by the sort of reflexive anti-communism, anti-Russia sentiment, you know, from the McCarthy era on, 
that they kind of went all the way over to the other side saying like, well, anybody who says anything that seems critical of Russia is only doing that because they're, you know, a biased secret McCarthyite. And I think that's where that comes from on the left, this sort of sense of, well, because Russia was condemned not only for everything it did, but for various things it didn't do in the past, we're going to automatically assume that all criticism of Russia today is is similar in nature and has bad motivations. Where it comes from on the right is, you know, it's more the Trumpy, Trumpy part of the right. I do think you're being a little unfair, though. I, I feel like since everybody's ganging up on the, the poor progressive caucus, I don't think it's quite fair to call them the Neville Chamberlain wing of the party. Uh, you know, I, I, and for several reasons. One, they're all just, they have all, obviously, they're scurrying to distance themselves from this letter. And it's, you know, it was a staffer who made an unauthorized rele- release of a letter that they absolutely would never have sent today, et cetera, et cetera, that staffer is going to be, you know, executed, executed at dawn. And what they're essentially saying is, look, this is from, this is from months ago. This is from almost five months ago. We don't think this anymore. So, 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 so number one, I actually don't see that it does a ton of damage. If anything, it sort of says to Putin, boy, you blew it. You know, there was a moment when you did have some support within the U.S. Congress on the left for some kind of talks. And you sure screwed that up because now you've lost even them. You've lost everybody. You know, so I, I don't I don't I don't see that it is necessarily as damaging either in terms of Putin's perceptions or in terms of our allies perceptions as as others fear, given given its age and how how aggressively the signatories have been disavowing it. I also think, uh, you know, I mean, the, look, these letters are always written in a totally mealy mouthed way and they're written deliberately in order to be subject to multiple possible interpretations. There is a more generous interpretation of what they said especially if you think of it as as going back some months ago, they're clear that they're not saying negotiate without Ukraine or impose something on Ukraine. If you look at the actual text, I don't think it's actually an unreasonable letter. I think that there are are things one could quibble with, but I also think that you could interpret, you could interpret it in a hostile way, you could interpret it in a more generous way. So I I just don't see it as that important, frankly. I mean, it, it just... I don't think that even Vladimir Putin imagines that the Progressive Caucus, uh, you know, is the center of power in Congress at the moment. So I, I think we're a little bit making a mountain out of a molehill that this was a sort of gesture. This was a gesture to sort of say, hey, we want to, we want to be able to, to show the anti-interventionist left that we're we're trying, but we don't really care that much, which is why we phrased everything in a way that would be, you know, you could interpret it in every possible way. Oops, and now now we're really embarrassed because everybody's mad at us and we, we take it all back. And it was that bad staffer. It will never happen again. Well, I'm sorry I brought the whole thing up. Yeah, it was mean yeah. of you. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, and particularly since I'm probably, I don't know, but Rosa and I could arm wrestle over this maybe, but I'm I'm probably the most dependably lefty member of this group. And I really respect a lot of these progressives. But I have to say. I thought this was ill-considered on a number of levels, and I'm not sure I dismiss it quite as easily, but I think you make points that need to be thought about here, Rosa. Let me shift the the focus. Andrew, another thing that's come up uh, this week is the latest chapter in sort of nuclear saber-rattling, uh, which is the Russians going and saying, well, the the Ukrainians have a a, a dirty bomb. They're going to set off a dirty bomb someplace. 
And this has produced a lot of exchanges with the United States, with others. I think the Russians at one point indicated this dirty bomb was using Russian uranium, which, you know, for those of you who fear false flag operations, <laughs> see that as a kind of a, a warning, a warning sign, if you will. But uh, what do you make of this? And, and what do you make of the broader strategy to keep coming up with these kind of stories on the part of the Russians? So let's look at the arc of where the last couple months have gone, David. At the end of August, the Ukrainians started a military counteroffensive, which has succeeded beyond their initial expectations and has really shifted momentum in their favor for the first time since the war started. And there have also been, I think, in the Russian minds, indications of Ukrainian willingness to be audacious and conduct deep strikes, including the strike on the bridge to Crimea, that, you know, make the Russians really nervous about, you know, how they, how, you know, what, how much of the territory they've uh, seized since February 24th is now at risk, including territory as well that they seized after the war started in 2014, 2015. And that uh, has triggered a Russian response, which we see in the form of the attacks on Ukrainian infrastructure and the desire to basically lay waste to parts of Ukraine that up to this point had not been targeted. And we could have a very brutal winter ahead. And there will be knock-on effects from that, refugees, greater need on Western resources to help Ukraine get through the winter. And then the very you know visible brandishing of Russia's nuclear weapons by Putin starting on September 21st. He's done this at other points in the crisis to basically suggest that, you know, as he says, Russia is prepared to use all means to defend its its territory. And we can talk about Russian nuclear doctrine. I'm not an expert on it, but, it, but it, you know, he's made very clear nuclear threats. And a lot of this is intended to make Western governments tell the Ukrainians to do something now, cut a deal or stop your offensive. And it's to rattle us and to make us really nervous that something super bad and super unprecedented might happen on the battlefield in Ukraine. And I can see scenarios where that is not a idle threat, right? And especially if Russia faces catastrophic military setbacks, this stuff starts to be more in play. So I'm less worried about the nonsense of, is there a dirty bomb plot? It's clearly nonsense. And the Russians have made similar ludicrous assertions at various stages in the war, including right before the war started when they claimed Ukraine was shelling parts of the two statelets and that that was providing justification for Russia to go in in the first place and defend people in those two statelets on February 24th. But we should not lose sight of what we're dealing with, which is a Russian military operation that is not going well, that is making Vladimir Putin reach for options that previously would have seemed really unthinkable, and to do things that are making Western leaders, for good reason, worried, as President Biden said in that campaign appearance a couple of weeks ago, that we're now, you know, closer to some kind of nuclear event than we've been since the early 1960s. And it just comes back to the last point I'll make, that we do seem to be in an escalatory spiral right now. And arresting that and making sure that we have good guardrails in place and making sure we have good lines of communication in place is incredibly hard right now. And that there is just not a lot of cushion or margin for error um, available to Western leaders, unfortunately. I never non-concur with Andrew. And that's always the hard part of speaking <laughs> after Andrew. 
I think he's right that it is most likely nonsense. And as Andrew said, I mean, these have been constant accusations throughout the war. This is not the first time that Russia is you, you know, accusing Ukraine of something that it itself is contemplating it might do. And we've seen these accusations about using Ukraine, potentially using chemical or biological weapons throughout the war, you know, accusations that they would use it in Odessa, another occasion in Donetsk. So these have occurred with some frequency throughout the conflict. So it's not the first time we're hearing it. And I think Andrew's point is spot on. It's designed to to slow, deter Western support for Ukraine. And it's been effective, right? The, the, the risk of nuclear escalation, it has, I mean, from, from the Kremlin's perspective, it is what kept the United States and NATO out of the conflict in the first place. And I think it's been what has led the United States to be so cautious and incremental in the support that it's been given, been willing to give to Ukraine. So I think up until this point, they see this kind of nuclear escalation, uh, this nuclear rhetoric and risk of escalation as an effective strategy. And I think it's critically important to the Kremlin that they're doing it now, because as Andrew said, they're not doing well in the war. And I think Putin's priority number one is to make it through the winter without significant losses. Um, you know, they did the mobilization, but it's going to take some time for any of those effects to be felt on the battlefield. And so I think he's really worried about what happens between now and the spring. And so I think that's the reason why we're seeing another uptick in these in these threats. There is the little voice in the back of my mind that does. I'm, I'm, it's, it's hard to dismiss these things, right, because of the risks. And so there is a little kind of point that keeps me up at night is, you know, I, I guess I could imagine that they could use a dirty bomb in part of Kherson as they're withdrawing from that region just to kind of destroy the land. And if we can't have it, you can't have it would be the sentiment. And it fits in the strategy that Corey was describing, which is they are trying to destroy Ukraine, uh, wipe it out economically. And so there is part of me that could imagine that they would do something that like that as a part of the strategy to just destroy that land and contaminate the area so that it's unusable economically or uninhabitable. So I agree with Andrew, it's most likely designed to deter our involvement. And I and I will tell you again, nervous Europeans in Berlin, they, these threats are causing a lot of anxiety. So it's not just directed at the United States, it's also other European capitals who are very anxious about the risk of escalation. But and I think it's designed to buy some space for Putin to get through the winter, because I think he's hopeful that with mobilization and the next wave of conscription, that they'll be in a better place come spring. The dirty bomb threats, by the way, echo kind of the concerns that existed around Zaporizhia and the idea that you, you, you cause a problem at a nuclear power plant that also has a radioactive plume. Uh, this is the point where we take a break. I want to go to Corey and Rosa and everybody else next about what do we do about all this. And that is something that our members will be able to hear. And if you were a member, you could hear it too. And it's easy to become a member. You just go to the dsrnetwork.com, click on membership. It's $5 a month and you help support us doing this. And uh, we've got a lot coming. So we, we, we hope you'll do that. For those of you who will not be staying with us because you're not yet members, thanks for joining us. For those of you who remember, stand by. We'll be right back. 